once a year, this is a very special time of the year, as you know, and it's and it's Christmas, and Christmas is a time of expectation, um, which reminds me of a story about uh, expectation. There was a, a woman who was interviewed by a TV uh, roaming reporter who went to a mall, and uh, the TV reporter asked her uh, what she expected uh, for Christmas, and she said she expected to be visited by a happy bearded fellow with a large bag on his shoulders. And another person who was in the crowd uh, whispered to her friend and said, uh, well, that would be my son coming home from college with his laundry. But uh, I think Christmas brings more than just expectation. It brings a, a spirit and a feeling of, of promise, of hope, of peace. And uh, unfortunately, if it's a season of promise, uh, it comes with a few broken promises. There's an old adage in the world of sports that says that records are made to be broken. And I think our experience with the world tells us that uh, promises are made to be broken. Just think of some of the promises over the years that uh, have been broken. Uh, There was a time when we were told that income tax would never go beyond 6%, where that uh, there would only be a 2% tax on Social Security that Medicare would never interfere with your doctor's medical decisions. How about this one? You can keep your medical plan or you can keep your personal physician. Well, that's gone now. And the bone of contention for New Jerseyans, um, property taxes are going to go down. Uh, I think we're still waiting. And then there's other things uh, such as marriage vows and uh, that promise promotion that you were supposed to get. I mean, there's so many broken promises that it's become the norm. And um, and then we look around the world and we say, you know, what does the world have to promise? What's there to be hopeful for? Rise in homicides throughout all of our major cities, inflation, the threat of rising taxes, rising gas prices, consumer products, supply chain issues, immigration uh, issues, illegal immigration issues, I should say. Smash and grab crime at stores, Omicron. 175,000 troops are poised at the Ukrainian border at this moment, uh, ready to take it over. China, with its overtones, to uh, overtake uh, Taiwan, and a host of other things. Uh, There were recent uh, typhoons in the Philippines. We, of course, had uh, devastating tornadoes across six southern states. And it all, it all adds to an increase in anxiety and an increase of uh, depression, suicides, especially among young people, over 100,000 last year. I mean, you think about all those things and you say, where's the hope? Where can there be a promise that won't be broken? Can there be uh, peace in my heart? And uh, one thing is, has, and always will be is that God is always in control. He loves us. He sent his son for us. And to die on the cross for us and our sins and for our salvation. Jesus comforted uh, his disciples with these words, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again to receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And that's such a promise. Isn't it? It's, you know, it's where I am, where Jesus is saying, where I am, I want you there. And the other thing is one of those statements in that, in that verse, which kind of people gloss over, he says, I will come again. And he is coming again. And there's our hope and there's our promise. 
So I think if there's any time to talk about the Christmas story or the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus, it's now in our lives. Because God, number one, gave us a gift, and that's the gift of his son. And secondly, he always keeps his promises. So if you, uh, unfortunately, you can't read here, uh, those at home might be able to uh, see if I got this, Alan. There we go. I have a sort of a an outline. Uh, unfortunately, you can't see it, but there's prophecy that's fulfilled. Uh, a populated place of ancestry before, during, and after the birth of Jesus and all of the participants who were part of that. But when we take a look at this, and um, I might say something today in Luke 2 that you've heard before. It may be redundant. You may leave here today and you may say, well, nothing new there. But, you know, this is Christmas. And when do we ever talk about it? I don't recall any time in July that we talk about it. This is the time. It's a heightened focus. And this is the time when we can, again, look at this account, especially in, according to Luke, um, about the birth of Jesus. And and really, uh, I guess let's focus on our attention, our hearts and our minds there uh, for what he has done. Now, one thing I would say about Luke's um the gospel according to Luke is a little bit different than the gospel according to Matthew and Mark and John. Um, there's, um, there's many features in Luke that are omitted in the gospel according to Matthew and, and Mark. It's the longest of any of the accounts in the details of the virgin birth. And the one thing I, I, I noticed about, uh, if you go into the verses, and it's Luke 2, verses 1 to 20, you see kind of matter-of-fact statements, very clear statements. Uh, Dr. Luke Ever the historian, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gave us firsthand accounts uh, for us, firsthand accounts. So let's go into this chapter. And as I said, I'd like to see some of the key persons who were part of this miraculous event. Uh, Caesar Augustus, Joseph and Mary, obviously the innkeeper. There's angels and there's shepherds. And of course, uh, Jesus himself. And so if you have your Bibles, if you wouldn't mind uh, reading along with me, uh, I I think I took this from the King James. I just like the way it's written in the King James for for Christmas, so uh, forgive me. Uh, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, and this taxing was first made by Serenius when Serenius was governor of Syria. All went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, 
as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one to another, let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that, and all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. And it was told unto them. Let's have just a a brief prayer, if we would. Our God and Father, we thank you again for this account uh, given to us um, through uh, Dr. Luke. We thank you again, Father, for all uh, that this uh, means to us. We ask uh, your blessing on the reading here and the application of this word for today. And we give you the honor, glory, and praise in Jesus' name. Amen. As far as prophecy is concerned, uh, A.T. Pearson had this to say, history is his, capital H-I-S, story. And uh, President James Garfield had this to say about history. He said that history was the unrolled scroll of prophecy. And um, Caesar Augustus, believe it or not, plays a role in the birth of Christ. As we just read, he ordered a uh, decree, and uh, it, it allowed um, it required all those to be registered for enrollment and for taxation purposes. It was a census involved there, obviously, for the taxation. It occurred just about once every 14 years. And so that meant that every Jew had to go to their birthplace to be registered, their place of ancestry. Now, hundreds of years before that, if you look at Micah 5.2, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So hundreds of years before this, the prophet prophesies about the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God was setting things in motion. And one thing about God, he keeps his promises. And so Caesar Augustus is involved in this. Um, actually, he's Caesar Augustus is the adopted son of Julius Caesar, uh, Augustus is the name, the title that he took is kind of a title of deity. Uh, his real name is Octavianus, as a matter of fact. But he's the Roman emperor, and he's taxing the entire then known Roman world. And the reason, obviously, maybe perhaps to finance future wars. One of the things that we, we, we can't uh, ignore is that uh, the Caesars, the emperors, they live luxurious lives. That money could be used for that and their palaces and their servants and all that. They weren't getting paid, but, but just to keep up that lifestyle, if you will. I like what David Gooding had to say in his commentary on the Gospel of Luke. He said it was to tighten his grip on the Roman Empire. So here's Caesar Augustus sending out this uh, decree, thinking he's going to put a tight, tighten the grip on, uh, on his empire. And at the time, Pax Romana was in effect, which is called the Roman peace. It started in uh, 27 BC and lasted throughout 14 AD. It, uh, that was uh, the effect of it. Essentially, there were no real war- Roman wars. Rome was kind of at peace, and um, re- at least relatively at peace. 
And I can't help but think that God is behind the scenes again. Because there was peace, this would allow Mary and Joseph to safely make the trip from Nazareth in Galilee all the way to Bethlehem, some 80 miles away, which at that time was probably about anywhere between a five and seven day trip. And let's not forget, Mary is with child about to give birth. So I'm sure that trip was maybe maybe a little bit longer. Um, but as the prophet predicted and God promised, there was going to be a birth in Bethlehem. One thing that we know for sure, governments rule. We can't help that. And we know there are leaders in government that rule. But one thing we do also, God overrules. And unknowingly, Caesar Augustus was helping to fulfill the prophecy of Micah 5.2. Um, William McDonald said he was a puppet to further the divine program. And I like that. See, God always works behind the scenes for his purposes. Uh, his timing is always perfect. Um, our brother Al actually read the, uh, uh, these verses uh, at the breaking of bread last week. It was Galatians 4. Four and five. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so Mary and Joseph make their way to Bethlehem. So let's talk a little bit about Joseph. I mean, there's not a lot of biographical information about him. Um, Joseph's not a, uh, a writer in the book of any Bible. Uh, any of the books of the Bible, no recorded words of him. We do know that he was a carpenter. We do know that he was a descendant of King David. We do know that he lived in Nazareth and Galilee. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23, give us a little idea of who he is, though, as far as his character is concerned. We know in those verses his faith was incredibly tested. But he loved Mary, and he was a just and righteous man. The Bible says that in 119. He was a man of integrity. And he believed in Mary's love and her integrity. And so what did he try? To, what was he going to try and do? He was going to try and divorce her quietly so nothing would happen to her. But the angel of the Lord uh, appeared to him. And four things I, I think happened there. His first of all, the angel of the Lord tells Joseph in the dream what happened with Mary. The next thing, to take him as his wife, or her as his wife. The next thing, who she was carrying in the womb. And finally, not only the name of the child, the, the gender of the child, but the name of the child. And the name would be Jesus. Because he shall save his people from his sins, from their sins. And we know something else that he talked about. He said that he would be great. He would be the son of the most high from the throne of David. He would reign over the house of Jacob forever. And this kingdom will never have an end. He was Emmanuel, God with us. Those were told to Joseph. And Joseph can freely uh, think about going on now and going to Bethlehem, uh, I guess with a clear conscience, if you will. And then there's Mary. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, you have your favorite uh, women of all his all time history, and there are many of them out there. Uh, I'm not dismissing that. As far as I'm concerned, the most famous woman in all of history is Mary. Uh, there's over 50 times she's her name is uh, brought up in the New Testament alone. And I do think that there's some misunderstandings and misconceptions about, about Mary. Um, nowhere in the Bible does it say she was without sin or that we're to pray to her or to worship her or that she's co-equal with God. But she is special, and let's not dismiss that. She was chosen of God, an ordinary Jewish woman, a young woman, maybe a teenager for all we know, to be used in an extraordinary way. She wasn't a religious leader. 
She probably wasn't even popular in uh, in Nazareth. Probably just maybe average by world standards. But she believed in God's word. And Paul read some of those words today. She was highly favored of God. Uh, about 800 years before this, um, the prophet Isaiah stated that he predicted a virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was a prophecy to the whole house of, of David. Now, one thing that we do know, whenever there's a problem, there's a promise as far as God's concerned. And if there's a promise, there's a provision. The problem was that the people of Israel walked in darkness. They were in sin. The promise was, as through Isaiah and Micah, that a baby would be born of a virgin. The provision, God would provide it. Provide Mary, the virgin, the virgin Mary. And then, of course, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you look closely at all this, as far as Mary is concerned, she had a lot to lose. She could have lost her fiance, maybe her life, who knows, um, friends, family, but she didn't panic. All she did was praise. We saw that in the, in the Magnificat. Um, she, she didn't worry herself to death. She may have worried, but she didn't worry herself to death, but she worshiped the Lord. She said, I am the Lord's servant. Be it unto me according to thy word. My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced. Understand these last few words. In God, my Savior. And that, to me, tells me that she wasn't sinless. She needed a Savior, too. So this is the one woman. There's billions of women that were born on uh, throughout time, right? Only one. Only one is called blessed amongst women. She's the one who was highly favored and pursued with grace. She's the only one who carried and gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ. She's the one who was present at his birth and also the only one who was present at his birth and present at his crucifixion. She saw Jesus come into the world as her son, and she saw him leave this world as her savior. That's Mary. Alfred Gibbs had this to say, from the heights of eternal glory, he came to the simplicity of a human body. For he, and 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that we might, through his poverty, be rich. In verses 5 and 6 in uh, second, second, uh, the second chapter of Luke, it's, still, it's a, rhyme, a reminder there about this promise. You see, you know, one thing I, you have to, I, I keep thinking about is God could have done a lot of things uh, to reconcile us to himself, but he didn't do that. He, he didn't send an angel. He didn't perform some ritual. He didn't accept all the sacrifices, thousands and millions maybe of sacrifices of lambs on the altars at the temple. He didn't accept that to take away our sin. No, he sent his son. He would come down from heaven. Now think about that idea. This is the creator of the universe coming down, taking on human flesh. I'm trying to think of something comparable to that, and I come up short. But think about yourself, you and I coming on and then taking on the form of an ant. All right. That's, and I don't think I'm, I think it's pale in comparison with as far as the humbling is concerned. So here is the Lord Jesus Christ coming down as a Jew, not a Gentile from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. And he was about to be born. So Mary and Joseph make this uh, difficult trip. It's 80 some odd miles and Mary's about to deliver. And so what happens when they get there? Bethlehem is a filled place. It's filled to the brim. The Bible doesn't tell us how many were there that night. 
I don't know, 20,000, 50,000, 500,000. We're not told. It's not there. That number's not there. But we know one thing. There was no room for them. As to him, there was no room to lay down his head. No room at all. I, I can't help but, you know, Mary's about to deliver. No place to do so. We as husbands who are out there, imagine, you know, we're kind of vulnerable when it comes time when our, our wives are ready to give birth. Are we not? I mean, we're, we put it in the hands of the Lord. We put it in the hands of doctors and whoever. And, you know, I just imagine a feeling of helplessness. I'm just thinking from a human standpoint of Joseph. What do I do now? You, you know, it had to go through his head. Um, because we have to talk about the innkeeper. That's the next person in this scene. Now, you're not going to find innkeeper in the, in the scripture. But it's certainly implied because it's just there was no room for them in the inn. So that meant that Joseph probably had to have inquired about going and being uh, having uh, lodging in, in an inn. And every inn has an innkeeper or two or three, maybe. But we don't know uh, that person's name. We don't know if it's a male or if it's a female. Uh, scripture doesn't tell us that. And I, but you can't ignore the fact that there was an innkeeper, I think. Um, the other thing is that there's no recorded dialogue that took place between Joseph and an innkeeper, and there's no conversation. Um, but we do know that Bethlehem was overcrowded, uh, busting at the seams, so to speak, because everyone back, everyone went back to their place of ancestry. So that meant that every living descendant of David went to the house of bread, Bethlehem. And that meant those with them. Okay, so can you imagine how, how crowded that was? So let's just say for, let's just say that this innkeeper certainly was uh, preoccupied. This innkeeper was, uh, I'd just say, overly busy than they, they, he or she may have been. And as a result, this innkeeper is kind of oblivious, maybe unaware, have no, certainly has no idea who he was turning away and saying there's no room for, for you in the end. And, um, but we do have a manger and I, I like to think that that as uh, John kind of brought it up a little bit, that the stable was maybe adjacent to the end. And I want to read a short story. It's, um, it's about having no room. Uh, this is when our country was in the early days, uh, as a nation, uh, a manager of a bolt of one of Baltimore's largest, uh, hotels refused lodging to a man dressed as a farmer. The manager thought that his lowly experience would discredit the inn. So the man left. And he found a room in another place. Shortly thereafter, the manager discovered that the man he had refused lodging was none other than Thomas Jefferson, then vice president of the United States. Immediately, he sends a note to Jefferson and invites him to return as his guest. So Jefferson replied by instructing his messenger, tell him I have a room all and I have engaged in a room. Uh, I do value his good intentions highly, but if he has no place for a dirty American farmer, then he has none for the vice president of the United States. Um, and I think like so many today, there's a lot turning Jesus down, turning him away. Uh, I mean, how many people are out there and not even understanding the real reason for the, for the season, as we say about Christmas uh, they're, they're, as far as Jesus is concerned, there's still a no vacancy sign posted upon their heart. Um, I think people are preoccupied. They're preoccupied with people, the uh, places. They're preoccupied with uh, 
I'm trying to keep the peace here. Politics. They're preoccupied with the pandemic. They're preoccupied with other priorities. And then there's always the countdown to Christmas and things that are related. You know, they're preoccupied with shopping and family and food and friends and who's coming over and who's not coming over. Who, where do we sit this one? Because they don't talk to each other and all these other kinds of things that t- take place. But as far as Jesus, sorry, no room. Sorry, no room. And it occurred to me as I was getting ready to prepare the message Have I been like this innkeeper in my life, especially throughout this last year? And I have to say, admittedly, I said there were times, yeah, I wasn't letting Jesus in for whatever reason. My own selfishness, my own sinfulness, um, my own uh, pride. And what about you? There are times where, you know, have you stopped and said, you know what, Jesus, don't come in today. I need to do this. I think um, if we're honest, uh, well, you you have to answer that question. I can only answer for myself. There were times I did that, and I shouldn't have. Uh, you can't see this, but the folks uh, who are zooming in can see this. It's a picture. I have a painting up. It's a painting of um, William Holden Hunt's uh, Light of the World. I think he painted it in somewhere around 1851 or so. And it depicts Jesus standing at a door. And he's knocking for entrance. It's called the light of the world. And so um, when he was done with it, William Hunt asked a fellow artist if he could just take a look at the painting and give his, uh, you know, through his another artist's experience eye, if you could just kind of carefully look at it and tell, tell me what you think. And, the, and, if, and of course, the other uh, artist looked at it and he said, you know, there's a wonderful expression of tenderness and patience on the face of the Savior. He said that there's a, if you, if you can ever Google that and find a painting, um, there's a light shed by the lamp that he carried. Uh, and there's some, a tangle of thorns about the doorway. And he said to Hunt, uh, William Hunt, he said, it's almost perfect, but you forgot one thing. You forgot the door, the handle on the door. And hence Hunt turned to him and said, ah, you missed the significance of my picture. The handle is on the inside. And that reminds us of Revelation 3.20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And so that's, you take a look at this birth. Uh, it, it came time for Mary to deliver, and she did. And, um, you know, I was thinking about that, too. And if I may digress for a sec, um, I had the blessing and privilege of being in the birthing room for our four children, our mid to gave birth to our four children. Uh, you know, and I was there and of course they put the hospital gown on and the things on little things on your booties, on your shoes. So you, you're sterile and your gloves and the mask and everything. And, uh, but I was in there and it was, you know, obviously one of those lifetime moments. Uh, but look at Mary, you know, the birthing room there in the hospital was sterile. There's, there's no, Look at this birthing room. I mean, it was probably a cleared out stall with some hay thrown down, you know, and um, because there was no room for them in the inn, and, you know, no pretty decorations in the, in the, in the walls of the, of the room and the cozy surroundings. No, it was there that the creator of the universe, the king of kings and a lord of lords gave birth. And as uh, was said earlier, it wasn't in a palace with his head on a silk pillow. Uh-uh. 
He was in a manger. That's where he was. And yet, this is a perfect birth. And you think of it, because God gave his perfect son, his sinless son to us. He humbled himself to be born as we are born. He's the lamb of God who who would take away the sins of the world. That's our sins. Yet he was born in the shadow of the cross because one day he would go to Calvary for us and for our salvation. August Van Ryan had this to say, he said, never was such an expensive gift wrapped in such humbling trappings. Think of it. The creator of the universe had to be swaddled. Those of you who have done it, I've seen it done. I don't know how to do it. I could change a diaper, though. Uh, but I, I can't swaddle a, a child and uh, leave that to my wife and his grandmother and mother and my, my daughter and daughter-in-law. I mean, I, it's just amazing how, how it's done. That's how humble Jesus was. He actually allowed somebody to swaddle him. I mean, I, I, it's just mind-boggling. And we come to the angels. And uh, when we speak of the angels, uh, I mean, they appeared to the, to the shepherds. They told them to fear not. But it was the first time that glory had, uh, the glory of God returned to the earth. If you take a look at verse 9 there. And he said, they said, I, I bring you great joy. Uh, great joy. Good news. Of gra- good news. That's, that's the gospel, isn't it? When you think of it. He said, I give you good news and a savior who is Christ, the Lord uh, is born this day in the city of David, a savior. That's Jesus Christ, the anointed of God, the Lord manifest in the flesh. And God sent his son. He didn't send a soldier. He didn't send a king or a prime minister. He didn't send a reformer. He didn't send a judge. He sent us a savior because only a savior can meet God's holy demand to meet our greatest need. And that was our sin. And that we can be reconciled to him. And then of course, there's this uh, unbelievable scene there when it says glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. The Bible says there's multitudes of angels. Now I was at a Billy Graham revival 30 years ago. You remember you were probably there um, when he came to the Meadowlands and the choir was about 350 people. And when they were singing, I mean, you get goosebumps just listening to the choir. Imagine what it's like with this multitude of angels in the, in the heavenlies singing with their angelic, angelic voices. Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace and goodwill toward men. Gloria in excelsis Deo, we, you know, we, as, a, as a hymn is written. Uh, and it's peace. Peace is given. Peace in a world where there's war much of the time. And it's interesting because I was thinking it's here's this Pax Romana, this time of peace, this from 27 BC to 14 AD. And yet, could Caesar Augustus grant the power to give peace of mind? No. Of the heart? No. Of the soul? No. And certainly couldn't grant peace with God. Because the absence of war is not any guarantee of peace or the presence of peace. That's for sure. And life was difficult then. Obviously, taxation and crime and immorality and government interference and oppression, uh, military takeovers. There was sickness, disease, and there was death. Has anything really changed in 2,000 years when you think about it? Roman law could not do it. Greek philosophy, even Judaism, even Jewish, Jewish religion 
could never deliver the need of the human heart. Nothing of those things can reconcile us to God, only a Savior, and God sent his Son to us. Uh, And even though everyone thought that they were going there for registration for taxation purposes, and that was probably the greatest and biggest story of the day, the real biggest story of the day was that this young Jewish woman swallowed her baby, maybe cradled him in in her arms. And he, of course, that's the biggest news of the day. That's the biggest news of all of history, the birth of the Savior. And let's go to the shepherds. You can't overlook them. And shepherding is interesting because there's over 200 references to shepherds and shepherding in the Bible. Abel's the first one mentioned. And then there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. They're all shepherds. It's not a flattering position as far as the social scale is concerned. Uh, They're considered unclean because there's so many days out and away from the temple. Um, They're viewed really as uneducated, uh, but it's just a lowly uh, a lowly reputation, but yet God chose these lowly shepherds to send an angel to announce the birth of the Savior. The first ears to hear about the birth of Jesus are, are to shepherds, and the first feet to make their way to the Savior are shepherds, and I find a great irony in that. Um, it wasn't to the religious right. It wasn't to the religious left. It wasn't to uh, Oh, the, the rabbis, it wasn't to scribes, it certainly wasn't to the priests, uh, it, it went to the shepherds. That's who the Lord chose to send it to. And sometimes when you think about it, he, uh, he doesn't call the rich and the powerful the strong. He calls the lowly to confuse, uh, confuse those who are powerful and strong, I think. Uh, I, I'm just kind of paraphrasing from 1 Corinthians uh, one twenty six through uh, to twenty nine through twenty nine it's a it's an unbelievable spiritual irony here humble shepherds uh, out in the fields, maybe tending sheep and lambs that might be sacrificed one day on uh, uh, you know for uh, just to think of that and there they are and now of course, what do they do I, I like to think that this first they hear about this this wonderful announcement and then they go and they see who's there it's the messiah they found the messiah the messiah in verse 16 of second uh luke 2 16 the word found there means after a search so they search and they found him and then the next thing in verse 17 what do they do i like the niv in this one because it says they spread the word they spread the word it's hard to keep it to yourself about the Lord Jesus. Once you know him, it's hard to keep it to yourself. You want to spread the word. And so he said, you know, here they are. They hear, they find, they, they see, and then they go. And what do they do? Uh, it's interesting because, ironically, a shepherd wasn't allowed to testify in court. Yet God chooses them to testify to the world that the Messiah is born because they became the first evangelists. They went out and they, and they said, we need to go out and tell everybody about this thing that we've seen and we have heard. And so there they are, the first evangelists, which brings us to the end of uh, our, uh, our scene, if you will, because we can't ignore who's there, who is the, who's the person that we're, we're talking about the most, we need to talk about the most. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he came as a savior, our deliverer. And uh, God's purpose was for that to us, and it's a promise to us. 
And may I say salvation is not in something you do. It's salvation is in the person. That person is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, may I say, and those who are viewing maybe uh, remotely, and who are here, if, if either you have salvation through his name and through his sacrifice on the cross and believe in his resurrection, or you don't. Um, the Lord said, uh, actually, through John, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but through me. There's only one way. There's only one way. You either trust him or you risk eternal consequences because the next time Jesus comes back, he's not coming back as a babe. He's coming back as a judge. When he sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives, he'll be judge. So something to consider for those of you listening. Uh, William Shakespeare said, what's in a name uh, in, uh, in Romeo and Juliet? He wrote that. Paul read it earlier today. The Apostle Paul had something about that name. He said, um, Wherefore, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of the things in heaven and the things in earth and the things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is God, is, is, is Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Um, Exactly who he is, it's difficult to explain. Um, he's not just a babe in Bethlehem. There's that chorus where we sing, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's something about that name, Master, Savior, Jesus, like a fragrance after the rain. Jesus, 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 oh, let heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms may all pass away, but there's something about that name. So really, who is he? Allow me just to give a few. He's the Alpha, the Advocate, the author of our faith. He's the bread of life. He's the bright morning star. He's the bridegroom. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the Christ. He's the door. He's eternal God, and he brings us eternal life. He's our faithful witness and the friend of sinners. He's our great high priest and the good shepherd and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's the head over all things and the horn of our salvation and our hope of glory. He's the great I am. He's our judge. His name is Jesus. He's the king of kings and the king of glory. He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace. He's the lamb of God and the light of the world. He's the light of Israel and the lion of the tribe of Judah. His name is life and he's Lord of lords. He's a man of sorrows. He's Messiah and the mighty God. He's the nail in a sure place, the only begotten of the Father, Omega and our hope. He's a Passover lamb and our great physician. He's our propitiation and the prince of peace. He's our quickening spirit and our ransom. He's our refuge. He's our rock. And he's, he's, he's our refuge, our rock, and his resurrection and the life. He's our shield and our shepherd. He's the son of God and the son of the highest and the savior. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the true God. His name is truth. He's the unspeakable gift and the upholder of all things. He's divine and he's the victor and he's the way and the wisdom and the word. And his name is wonderful. And he is our yes and amen. What a present from God. What a gift. God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son to whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. There's so many names about the name of Jesus throughout the Bible. Why so many names? Why so many titles? 
because one name and one title cannot fully explain who he is. And even though we have hundreds of them, we still can't fully explain it. You know, if you take a look at the New Testament in the first verse in the New Testament, what do you see? The name of Jesus. Take a look at the last verse in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. What name do you see? You see the name of Jesus. His name was predicted in the Old Testament. His name was presented in the New Testament. His name was proclaimed in the epistles. And finally, it's praised in the book of Revelation. There's something about that name. It's a sacred name. It's a special name. And it's a saving name. For there is no other name under heaven given to men whereby you must be saved. You know, the message of Christmas, the message of the incarnation, it's God's love and compassion on us, giving us his dear son who went from the cradle to the, to the cross on our behalf. Promise, there it is. Hope, there it is. Peace, you can have it through Jesus Christ. I'll end it with one little story. Forgive me for my emotions. It's about a little boy. He, um, he was in a Christmas pageant, and he had to play the, the role of the innkeeper. And... Uh, he didn't like the he didn't really like the part he was going to play, but he had to play it. And so when it came to, he only had one line. There's no room for you in the inn. That's all he had to say. So when it came time for the for the play and in front of the whole congregation, Mary and Joseph approach him, and here he is in this little makeshift uh, inn, and they're looking for for lodging. And he gave his line. Only he gave it this way. He said, "There's no room for you in the inn." but you can stay in my house. After the pageant was over, after the play was over, the director who put in so many hours of work, et cetera, which is, you can understand, was upset and came to the little boy and said, why did you do that? Why did you add something? You only had one line to give. And the little boy with tears in his eyes said, I just couldn't turn Jesus away. I just couldn't turn Jesus away. May that be something in our hearts and lives forever and ever and ever until he calls us home. Let's pray. Oh, dear God in heaven, we just thank you and praise you for the gift that you've given us, the gift of your dear son. We thank you for what he has done, how he humbled himself coming from the throne room on high to be born as we are born, to take on human flesh, to suffer as, as uh, no other could suffer going all the way to the cross for our sins and our salvation. We thank you too, Father, for your daily grace and your compassion on us. Again, we thank you for His life, the Lord Jesus' life and what he has done. We just ask that we would never, ever, ever turn him away, that there always would be room in our hearts. And again, we just give you thanks and praise for all these things. We pray this in your name, in the name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And a Merry Christmas to everyone.